0: marvelous grace you know what that reminded me of this morning i'm doing my devotions in joshua right now and i just got to the story of rahab and i'm reading this about this lady who doesn't deserve any salvation at all this this prostitute an outcast probably in her own city and yet she has faith in yahweh she has fear of him because of the stories she has heard of how he has saved his people And she welcomes in these spies and hides them in her house. And the Lord grants salvation to this outcast. And she hangs the scarlet cord. And everyone contained within the house with the scarlet over top, death passes over. And she's welcomed into the family of God. Grace, grace, marvelous grace that we don't deserve. Shown right there to someone outside the family welcomed in just like to you and to me outside of God's family, welcomed in. Amen? Amen? Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Welcome here this morning. I'm Pastor Darren. Pastor Don is going to be preaching here in a few minutes. I'm really glad you're here with us this morning. And if you're not a regular part of the family, then welcome here as you visit. And to the rest of the family, it's good to see all of you. couple announcements for you, and a very special announcement Uh, Dave Penner, why don't you come on up? And I'll share the other announcements as you come on up. So, a few announcements this morning. Family Ministries, we are going bowling today from 2 to 4. So, if you're a bowler, we better see you from 2 to 4 today. And if not a bowler, you might be going to Zion Mennonite Church for the Oratorio concert tonight at 7 o'clock. So, either you're bowling or going to a concert, but you've got something to do today. Senior Moments is on the 25th, so if you're coming to Senior Moments, make sure you've signed up. That's happening. And for the youth group parents, we're going to have a little meeting after church today in the fellowship room to talk about looking for the next youth pastor of the church. There's also a special post in the bulletin this week that we are looking for a new janitor. Joyce, after 35 years, is retiring And we're looking for someone to carry on the mantle. So you're going to notice that in your bulletin. And if you would love to carry on the work Joyce has been doing and take care of our church building, then you can apply. And there's more information about that if you would like to have that part-time job. But if you look in Bridgeway's history book, the 50-year anniversary book, I know, I was reading it this week. And guess what it says in that book? It says, a new and exciting opportunity came to the church in the year of 1979. It was the year of the Asian boat people. At first, Bridgeway Church voted to sponsor one couple, and the arrival time was October. By November, the church wanted to bring in the whole family, including the parents, two of their daughters, and a son. Once here, this immigrant group was supplied by the church with groceries every week and also rent and utilities. Leadership in this project was provided joyfully by Dave Penner's family, Peter Friesen's family, and Jake Weens's family. Well, today, a little piece of Bridgeway history is, uh, is going to be shared with all of you. So Dave, that was in, there. That was in this book, isn't that neat? Yeah, I didn't know that. You take it away and you introduce our special guest this morning.
1: Good morning, Church Romney. Today I have a very special guest here with us and uh, I know that many of you say well we don't know this because this was 40 years ago. How many of you are 40 years old here that remember anything? <laughs> <laughs> so really I'm going to introduce her anyhow. I want to start out with a question. How many of you believe in missions? Today, I have proof of missions, what missions can do, and this is our proof that we have here today. In 1979 or 1980, we, together with MCC and the Bridgeway Church, we brought a family from Laos to to Canada, and this is the results, 40 years later. No, we we brought in John John and his wife, Inka, uh, uh, Sam and Mesu, they were uh, at that time, and uh, and Mesu is here to represent their whole family. And then we had her sister, Ping and Noi, and uh, Lo, a brother, Lo, that also came and John's brother, Bert, and a few months later, then her parents, which had already left Laos for France because of the unrest that was there, they went to France first, and then they came over here. We brought them in here and at that time, yet too. So that was very good. But it wasn't all without sadness. John's wife, Lynn got sick and she passed away at us here. And we had a funeral for Lynn. And we went to the funeral to the cemetery yesterday. We put some flowers on her grave. That was Misu's sister. And a few years later, then they moved away. John and Lo and Inca, they moved to BC. Misu and her husband and Peng Noi moved to Ontario, and uh, the parents came la- later, and they all to, went to a, a BC. And I think this fits in very well with what Don's messages have been for us, a healthy church. A healthy church can help other people, and that is what we have done. And t- today, I have Miss Sue here as a witness for that, and she will... I give her a thank you to you now.
2: Thank you. Yeah. Good morning, everyone. My name is Mei Sue Pakisoni. As Mr. Panel said, in nineteen seventy-nine my sister Lynn and her husband and her baby boy and also her husband's brother, but yet yeah, they came to the church. And the body of Christ here was so kind to them. I'm so sorry, I promised that i know not be quiet. Okay. That's <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. But in 1980, my husband and I, we moved from Montreal to here to be with my sister when she was hospitalized, fighting with cancer. And we received such a special welcome. From this body of church, and then later on in a month, my parents came from France. All my brothers, sister, we didn't know the language. We kind of like struggling with language. We didn't understand the love of God. We don't know who is Jesus. But the family here, they continued to educate us with God's love, and he sacrificed on the cross. He died on the cross to take our sins away, and he rose again on the third day. He is our Lord and Savior. But somehow, during the time that we were there, we were here after my sister died. My mother was so sad. She cries every day, almost a whole month. And my father broke his hip right outside the parking lot it is this church. And then my brother-in-law had to move to BC to his family and took my nephew with him. So we was very sad and my, ma- my parents moved to BC because they want to be near the grandson. That's only grandson they had at the time. So my husband and I, we remained here six years later and we moved to Ontario we ran away from God because we didn't understand his love. But the people in this church, like Mr. De Penner, Mrs. Helen Wien and her husband, and Henrietta and, and, and Peter Friesen, and the many P- people.
1: Friesen, Peter, Peter Friesen and Jake and uh, Helen Wien were also in the committee.
2: Yes, yes, and many people. and. Like Laura and her husband um F, yeah. yeah, and many people in this church take turn to take care of my nephew when my sister was in the hospital so her husband can go to work and I'm really appreciative for the kindness. And I just want to make a story short because yeah. I don't want to keep too much of your time. And then somehow the seed that the body of Christ here so, so in our heart. You know, and they continue to water them. And the Lord make it grow and continue to grow. And a few years later and after my parents moved to BC, my mom, she baptized. She accepted Lord Jesus into her heart. And then, but we were still lost. But in 2000, I baptized and accepted Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. In 2002, my three children baptized in Brampton, um, Ontario. And then from then on, my daughter, um, she involved with the church com- youth committee and you know start to share the love of God, the news, of the jesus christ good news of jesus christ to the unbeliever and then my second son my second child which is my son he became a sunday school teacher and later on and married and uh to a christian lady and my third son he's also became um sunday school teacher also worked in sound room for over 10 years and for myself um, I remain in church and teach Sunday school and um, work as a volunteer in um, the Jane Finch Community Ministry in the food bank serving Do the, um, the God's work there so it is my privilege and my honor To say thank you lord that you watch over us and make us grow in your love and it be it start from here it start from here the body of christ here that help us to know jesus love and to follow him to focus in him so today i'm here i just want to say thank you on behalf of my parents they always want to come here to say thank you, but they didn't have the opportunity. Yeah. They both passed away in, B- yeah, one in BC and one in um, Ontario. Yeah, I just, before um, I say anything else, like I want to introduce my two sisters yeah. yeah, in Christ. Good, yeah. They gave me a, a ride here and make everything happen for me to be here. And they also very um, devoted Christian. They continue to do the, the Lord's work, and they're involved in this um, high church. They often get invited in, uh, to Medicine head to share um, the good news of Jesus Christ to the migrant who work in the farm in Medicine Head. Currently, they have 300 migrant that um, work there, and five people have been saved. And for myself, in the last past eight years, I have to travel to China, my mother's homeland. And we actually stopped in Hong Kong to um, uh, pick up a lot of uh, supplies, like the children's story book, Bible book that we couldn't bring into China since we cannot bring in um, Bible. So, but we have gone into the deep mountain in the small villages near, uh, near Vietnam border. We reached out to all those people there and we share with them the God's love and our Jesus Christ's love and his message and his word. And Thank you, everyone. Very good. Yeah.
1: The girls you, you stand up. <laughs> you go, yeah. Those yeah. are the two girls that That's are they are traveling with her. Sure. Yeah. Okay.
2: I just wanna, one more thing. I just have this friendly advice to the young people. You know, it doesn't matter how hard life is, focus in God, in Jesus. Keep your eye on him. Talk to him, pray to him, praise his holy name, and believe in him, follow him, and accept him in your heart, and he will make your path straight, as he did mine, and still does mine. Thank you.
1: Thank you. God is good. Amen. Wow.
0: All right. We're going to worship God at the time of prayer. I feel like we need to give thanks for how seeds can be planted in people's lives. And you have no idea at that moment when that seed is planted what it will result in. And sometimes, sometimes you get to see it years and years later. And after that, the worship team is going to lead us in another time of singing. Let's pray together as a family and worship God. Father in heaven, I'm just stirred by this story. Thank you for the moments in the lives of so many people where seeds have been planted, Lord Jesus, of the gospel, of salvation, of hope, and of life eternal. Thank you, Lord, that so many years ago, this church family loved other people, their neighbor as themselves, and loved you with their heart and soul and strength and mind and welcomed strangers from a different world to come live here amongst us. And then it led to them knowing you, your salvation, and now life forever. Jesus, would more seeds like this be planted in more people's lives? Would you stir this church family again to love other people, their neighbor as themselves? and love you with all of their heart. Thank you for Mesu and her family, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you've drawn so many of them to eternal life and hope in Jesus. Such a greater gift than any gift a church could give somebody. Life forever, thank you, Jesus. And Holy Spirit, if you are planting seeds right now in this family, or if you're using faithfulness right now in this church family to reach this community, I pray that you would water those seeds, that those seeds would grow, and there would be a harvest. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for stirring our hearts to be obedient. Thank you for people that answer the call. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you do the work. You just ask us to be faithful with our part. But today, Lord, the honor and glory belongs to you because we could do a lot of great things, but unless you are active in it, making seeds grow, we can do nothing. So you are the king. You are the one that we say amen to. Amen, amen. You have made these seeds grow. It is the power, Lord Jesus, of your spirit. And this morning, throughout the preaching of your word and the singing of these songs, we just want to continue to say, it is your power, Lord Jesus. It is your love that we are here to honor and worship. We love you. And Lord, we pray that you would do it again and do it again and do it again. We pray, Lord Jesus, for the next harvest. We continue to plant the seeds. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.
2: Being faithful and doing our part is, is worship as well, and it's, worship is bringing glory to God, and we are learning that there are many ways to do that. This week in my devotional time, I read the following. Pastor Dave Adamson writes, the Hebrew word avana is translated as humility or to occupy our God-given space. We might not always like our space or we may crave someone else's space, but according to Adamson, an expanded translation of humility is to occupy fully our own God-given space. The author of this devotional then had this prayer. Lord, thank you for reminding me of my role in tending to the space you have assigned to me Help me to stay humble and look for the opportunities you've given me right where I am. May that be part of my worship, O Lord. Amen. Please stand and sing with us.
3: As you see by the slide, kids, you are dismissed now for Children's Church, so if they aren't there already, you're certainly welcome to go at this time. All right. Well, let's uh, bow in prayer together before we dive into the message today. Oh, Lord, uh, what what a beautiful morning to be in your presence and to be together with your people. Lord, thank you for the inspiration and being encouraged by your amazing grace today, and Lord as you've shown that in the lives of people we've heard share, and Lord, as we reflect on your amazing grace in our life. Oh Lord Jesus, thank you. Lord, even as we sang about uh, breaking chains, oh Lord, I pray that your healing power to break the chains in our life that hold us back, would that be released in our presence today, we pray. And oh Lord, may we all be able to celebrate and proclaim, Lord, that your grace, your amazing grace, gives us life and hope. So Lord, I just pray over this congregation today. Lord, for anyone today just struggling with the need for strength, with the need for hope, Lord, I just pray that you would reveal yourself to them today and give them a sense of courage and the hope of your presence to carry them through and to guide them in the future. Oh Lord, I just pray your love and compassion to pour out of your congregation today. And Lord, as we look into your word, Lord, as we, we approach a subject that, uh, that can be difficult for some, I just pray for your grace to be present, oh God. And Holy Spirit, would you, um, in a miraculous way, bypass the very less than adequate words of dawn and speak through your word powerfully today that we may hear and respond to you and you alone. So this is my prayer, and I pray this over this congregation today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning again, everyone. Great to see you, Bridgeway Congregation, and welcome again to those of you who are guests and visitors with us today. It's a privilege to have you share this service with us. So if you are a guest today, I don't know if I have to apologize, but I feel like I kind of do, because you came on a Sunday when we're gonna go at a topic that isn't exactly a nice or easy, gracey type topic, We've been in a series called Healthy Church, Biblical Church, and so we've been looking at major topics and major sort of foundational items that make a healthy church. And so today, we come to something that I believe makes a church healthy, and that is healthy discipline. Hmm. So, for those of you who are parents out there, have you ever had a fight with your spouse over how to best discipline your children. Oh, I hear, <laughs> yes, I hear some laughing. Okay, now I'm going to tell a story that some of you heard before, so I apologize for the repeat. But um, a number of years ago, when my wife and I were at the raising young kids stage, um, we were all excited because we were going to about to get a weekend away. My parents were taking the kids, and we were going to be driving from Saskatoon to Canadascas, Alberta, for a weekend pastors retreat, and we were just pumped to get some time alone together. So we get into the car and we're from Saskatoon and we had an eight hour drive pretty much from Saskatoon to Kananaskis. And we got in the car thinking we're just gonna have this wonderful time finally being alone together. And you know what we did? We argued the whole way. (laughs) And this wasn't even just kind of like one of those like little bit of an argument and then we just each stared out the window and, and annoyed and avoided each other. No, no, this was like a full out yelling, making our points, We went for it. Eight hours. We were just exhausted by the end. (laughs) Now, we we love to tell this story because even to this day, we disagree on what the argument was about. (laughs) So, if she was here, she would be going, don't believe Don now because this isn't true. But anyway, my perspective on what the argument was about was that we were discussing, isn't it nice how we call it discussion? We were discussing... The best way to raise our kids, the best form of discipline, the best form of parenting. And her point was strongly on the, and all the women are going to jump up and down, on the, we need more structure side. And my argument was more on the, we're good the way we are. (laughs) My argument was so weak, right? Anyway, one of the things I learned from that argument and that tension was that in many topics, from, both, from the Bible to church to marriage to relationships, there are many topics where the truth is in the tension. And so you can see my little graphics there, and that, that rubber band that says tension on it, I don't know how clear it is up there, that's being stretched. So think about that for a moment. The truth is in the tension. So, a couple examples of what I, of what I mean by that. So, in Scripture, there's many, many examples where I would suggest to you that the truth is in the tension. And this is what I mean. Let's take the most common example, which would be, the Scripture teaches that we are saved by grace. And if you read all the letters written by Paul, it would be very easy for you to say the biblical answer to how we are saved is that we are saved by grace. And yet, if you turn to the book of James, James would say that faith without works is dead. And that if there's no evidence of works, you don't have real faith. So what is it? I would suggest to you that the truth is in the tension. Many other examples. So one that I know some of you love to debate would be the debate between what we call predestination or the free will of humanity, right? I could show you scriptures that make it oh so clear that God is sovereign and knows everything in advance. He knew you before you were born. I could make a whole case that that's the right side. And some of you could make a whole case from many other scriptures that there is much freedom and much choice. So what is it? I would suggest to you again that the truth is in the tension. So today we're going to talk about discipline and more specifically church discipline. So what's the first reaction you have? Let me guess. This would be my guess. I think for some of you, your first reaction is probably, well, it's about time. You mamby-pamby pastors and you soft churches, you just want to let things slide and never confront and deal with everything. It's about time we talk about this. Some of you think that. Some of you are already churning with sickness in your stomach (laughs) because you're thinking of very painful situations where people have been hurt and wronged and wounded and left faith and left church over some very misguided and misplaced discipline in churches. And you may, or maybe you don't care, I don't know. But I'm, I'm guessing that a lot of you might have those two visceral reactions right away. Well, could I suggest to you that my principle applies to this, too, that the truth is in the tension. I think there's no doubt that because this is such a difficult area that churches and church leaders and church families have, a diffi- have difficulty with knowing how to handle church discipline. Absolutely true. And yes, it's also very true that church discipline has been used so poorly to bring much pain to people as well. So both of those are, tr- are truths But there's scripture that guides us in this, and I think that we can find some truth in the tension of looking at the scriptures today. So, the truth is in the tension. Now, before we go specifically to church discipline, let's just for a moment remember what discipline is when it comes to God, and when God disciplines. And the best passage for this would be Hebrews chapter 12, where this is unpacked as to why God disciplines. And if you see, the next slide will show you Hebrews 12, just two of the verses, five and six, that say, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. So the very base principle of why does God discipline? Well, God disciplines because he's love. God disciplines because he's the creator, he loves his creation, and because he loves his creation, he shows his love like how a parent disciplines a child. So God's ultimate purpose for discipline is love and family. I would suggest to you that the ultimate purpose of church discipline is for love and family. Um, take a look at uh, just, just a couple verses. We'll go into a lot of them today. But James 5, 19 and 20 says, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. And then Galatians 6, 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. And there's many others. But again, I would like to suggest to you that just like God's ultimate goal in disciplining us is for love and family, the ultimate purpose of church discipline is for love and spiritual family to be expressed within what we call the body of Christ or the church. And so let's, let's keep that in mind as our foundation as we talk about church discipline today. Now, in this topic, there are two main texts that are used, and we're going to look at them both. One of them are the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus gives a three-step approach to how to handle church discipline. And then the second is from a letter written by Paul called 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5, where the church has to deal with a very serious case of incest. And we'll look at that tragic passage as well. So, but let's begin with Jesus, and let's go to Matthew chapter 18, and I'm going to read from verses 15 to 17. These are, this is Jesus' words. If your brother or sister sins, or some translations will say sins against you, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church, and if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Hmm. Interesting things have come up here. Okay, so overall, Jesus gives us a three-step approach to dealing with discipline. Step number one is... If you feel like you see someone harming themselves and in sin, or, or, or as well, of sin or someone who has wronged or hurt or sinned against you, Jesus would say, as an individual, go to that person privately. That's step number one. Now, just a few thoughts around that. If you are led to do that or feel compelled to do that, I think you have direction from Scripture to do so. Good. But I think it's important that we First, check our motives, and ask ourselves right off, are we being motivated by love for this person? Are we be, or, or, are we maybe being motivated by jealousy? Are we maybe being motivated by our own desire for vindication? Or to have others think that we're right and they're wrong? So we really need to be careful about checking our motives, because What Jesus teaches and what's taught all through Scripture is that if it doesn't start with the intent of love for the brother and sister that you're going to, you need to check your motive. I think it's really important that we look inside and say, is the goal restoration? Do we really want restoration and reconciliation or repentance from that person? Is that the goal? Or... Deep down, what we really want, and and I'll call it this, is is a public shaming. Now, sadly, I've seen this so often in the church, where, for example, people will have offenses against each other, and they they won't go to the person they're offended with. They'll store it up, and they'll wait for a strategic time, like a meeting, so that they can get up in that meeting and publicly shame the person, because that gives them more, I don't know what it gives them. I call it the, ah, <gasps> factor. And, and, I mean, it can sound ridiculous, and yet sometimes it is so incredibly hurtful. And I'll, I'll tell you one silly story that happened to me, because I think it's really silly. So this is back when I was a Darren, mid-30s, first lead pastor position, and I was in this very conservative church, and it was an awesome church. Well, as I'm leading in my early on days in this church, um, we, we had a choir and we did traditional music, but we also were starting to do this new thing, a worship team, oh, terrible new thing. And anyway, I was helping getting this worship team going. So one Sunday, I moved the monitor that faced the choir so they could hear good, and I moved it a little bit over so that we could use it for the worship team. Okay, that's what I did. Evil, evil, terrible thing I did. Well anyway, no one said a word to me, but at the next board meeting, At the top of the agenda was, who moved the monitor? (laughs) They all knew who moved the monitor. They could have come to me and say, Pastor, we need that monitor so we can hear, why did you move it? And we could have easily fixed the problem. But you see, sometimes we get programmed in church and in other ways that the best way to deal with conflict is a public shaming. If we can make the person feel ashamed and we can get people to gasp with horror at what somebody did, that's a victory. We're vindicated. Now, I'm making such a big point of that because that was such a ridiculous thing for me. But let me just say, yes, we have instruction for Scripture that accountability and discipline is important and we're told by Jesus to go to, peep, to go to our brothers and sisters and to confront them on things and to point out things. We, we are blessed and told to do that out of love. But again, I just want to remind us to be so careful about our motives, so careful about our motives. You see, we need to remember Jesus' words from Matthew seven, right? Which is the other side of the tension. Let me define the tension again. In Matthew seven, Jesus says, "Do not judge." In 1 Corinthians chapter five, Paul says, "You need to judge that person." So what's the truth? The truth is in the tension. But in that famous passage that Jesus said in Matthew chapter seven, After he says, do not judge, he says, remember, this famous line, that before you go to someone about the speck in their eye, maybe deal with the plank or the log in your own. So that would be my other warning before we go to people. Now, Jesus didn't say that there isn't a problem with a speck, right? Have any of you ever had a little speck in your eye, and it just bugs you all day and your eye gets really sore and watery? Like, it, it can be. So Jesus isn't saying, therefore, don't ever judge or confront someone. No, he's just saying, move the big beam out of your eye first, <laughs> that big log that is oh so obvious, you know, and then maybe you can, you can go and point out a speck in a brother's eye. So again, let's, let's really look at our motives. But again, Jesus does say to us, go first to the person individually. And you hear what Jesus says? If you go to them and they respond, woo, you've won them over. You've communicated to your brother and sister that you love them. Even if you had to say something that was really hard for them to hear. You prove to them, like like God, you discipline and confront the person because you love them. You want to see them restored. You want to see them restored in their relationship with God. And if you win them over, you may have a friend for life. Because that person's going to trust you and, and also trust you that you came to them before you tried to shame them or involve other people. So that's, that's step number one from Jesus. So Jesus says, if they don't respond, well then secondly, um, you take someone with you, or maybe one or two people with you. Now here too, we, we need to be careful that we choose the person wisely that we take with us. Remember that this is not a ganging up, Remember, no matter what level we get to in this process, always keep in mind the end game, which is repentance and restoration. That's always the end game. So even when you bring another person with you, again, you're not trying to bring someone intimidating or someone to help gang up on the person, but you're bringing someone who's going to be able to, in love, communicate well, and collaborate with you. So for example, if you have to confront someone on, hey, you know what, I see this in your life, and they go, what are you talking about? That's not true. I don't do that. And then, it, so what? You come back with the person, another person, and you say, hey, I know this is really hard. However you do it, pray together and, you know, and then, and then say, hey, this is what I pointed out in your life. You pushed back and said it wasn't true. And the other person could say, you know, I see that too. And together, we want to help you face this. Still not easy to do, but it's done in that spirit. Now, there may be times when we're talking about something really serious, like, say, an abusive situation. Now, maybe in a case like that where someone might feel really unsafe, you may need to consider in wisdom who you bring with you in, in, in that way. But I think that would be more rare. I think most often, again, what are, what are we seeking to happen here? Repentance and restoration. And so, yeah, keep that in mind, too, even in thinking about bringing another person with you. And then Jesus says, if that doesn't work either, then you bring it to the church. Now, what did he mean by that? I'm not sure he meant that, like, at a regular ga- church service gathering, have someone come up and do this big confrontation. I would suggest that he's meaning more to a leadership group or to a special meeting that's called for this purpose. But again, Jesus says there does come a time in the process where there, there does need to be the church involved in bringing discipline to a person who will not repent or not respond to what they're being led to. Now, at the end of this, though, Jesus does say something that seems either a little bit strange or or maybe a little bit disturbing to you depending how you look at it, but he said if they refuse to listen, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Hmm. So what do you think he means by that? Now, if we're going to if we're going to now, Jesus is talking to the Jews at this point, so how did the Jews treat pagans and tax collectors? Well, as you're thinking about that, let me, let me start here. I don't think that Jesus here is talking about complete banishing, or what's the word I'm looking for? Shunning. You've probably all heard of churches or religions that practice the, the art, no, practice whatever, shunning. Shunning. I don't think that's what's being talked about here. Let me explain. I think when Jesus says treat them like a pagan or tax collector, now even even though the Jews hated all non-Jews, which was another problem, but anyway, they still had to associate with them. They still had to do business with them, live life with them, see them on the street. They They still had to do basic life with them. Now tax collectors, that was maybe a little more confusing because those were fellow Jews who were like traitors because they were selling out to the Roman government to basically betray their own people. So they they probably hated tax collectors even more than the pagans. But again, they had to have day-to-day dealings with them. Now think for a moment even of Jesus' life. Jesus spent time with pagans and tax collectors. However, Jesus also spent m- most of his time and his intimate time with his disciples. So I would suggest to you that the discipline is really more about, that, about the people that are being confronted or, or will not or need to be disciplined. Again, they're not shunned, but they need to, need to be disciplined to where they're not kind of in that inner circle of intimacy with, with the people and with people in the congregation. And that might be more of what the picture looks like. Now, again, this gets controversial because different churches do different things, but depending on the discipline situation, it may be saying to the person, you need to step down from leadership. It may be saying to the person that you need to withdraw from the ministry you're involved in. And sometimes it may mean that that person is asked not to participate in communion. But there's a difference between Some of those disciplines that, though, will be very painful and hard for the person, um, it's not about shunning. It's not about saying you can't, you you know, you, you avoid them on the street. They can't come to church anymore. Now, again, if serious discipline like this has to happen, it will be painful, and it might be really hard for that person to continue to come to church if they've been asked to step down from other things. It does get very complicated. But again, I'm just trying to point out to you that Jesus isn't meaning here, therefore shun them and just be mean and evil to them. Remember again what the end game is. The end game is always love, repentance, reconciliation. And so are we gonna continue to have contact with that person? Yes, because we wanna see them repent and come back to Jesus and be restored to relationship. Will there be a season where they may need to, be st- to step back from things because there needs to be accountability and discipline? Yes, that won't be easy, but that's what we're being told to do here. So, that's Jesus's, and that's a way easier than the next one. <laughs> so the next one is Paul's example from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So let's read that now, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. And he goes on to give some more illustrations about this, but we'll, we'll read just that much for now. All right, well, when you hear this passage again, I feel the tension in the room, because we get both the, you go, Paul, and we also get the, whoa, that sounds really, really harsh. Hmm. So how do we respond to this? Well, let me, let me try to unpack this from this perspective. Why is Paul so ticked, so angry, and why does he seem so harsh? Why is Paul so angry, and why does it seem like what he's asking to do seems so harsh? Well, let me try to, try to answer that question while unpacking this text. Okay, first of all, I believe Paul is really ticked off, really angry, because this is yet another example of division in the church. Now, if you read all of 1 Corinthians, this letter... In the early chapters, especially in chapter 3, Paul is saying to this church, there's divisions among you. This church is being split apart because you're all divided. It's the passage where it says some of you follow Paul and some of you follow Apollos and they were were divided over which leader to follow and which movement to follow and the church was so divided that Paul was grieved and he had to to address division in the church as evil and not good and what are you going to do about it? And so then, when this situation comes up to him, it's like just another step of, oh my goodness, and now this too? This is how divided you are? This kind of stuff's happening in your church? He's ticked off about that. And, uh, you know, um, some speculate that he might have been referring here to a certain faction within all those divisions. And I don't know if he had a name for this faction, but this faction might have been called the Freedom Flaunting Faction. And what I mean by that was that that there would have been a teaching among some of the Gentiles that because we are free in Christ, we don't have to follow the Jewish Old Testament law. We're, We're free in Christ. And yet if they took that truth out of context, that meant a freedom that said, then sin doesn't matter anymore. We can do whatever we want and we're fine because we're free in Christ. And Paul is addressing that there was a faction in the church that, that would have possibly had a leader and a group of followers, that that was kind of their mantra. And he's just upset about that. So, number one, division in the church. I think Paul's really upset here and, and seems severe because he's recognizing what gossip is doing. Now he gets, I hear reports, and, I, and Paul's far away, and he's hearing the gossip, and I think Paul is livid. Because he's seeing how gossip divides and destroys churches and people. And it's wrong and it's evil and it makes them mad. And he's addressing it. Not only does gossip break apart the church and impact the church, but the effects of that gossip also means that, that the gospel itself and the reputation of the church and the community are both affected by the fact that all of this gossip's going on and people know all the ugly and dirty laundry of the church. He's not too happy about that. I would suggest to you that Paul is really ticked off and seems really severe here because Paul sees the evil root of this whole situation. And to him, the evil root of this situation is pride. He mentions it three times. If you go back to chapter four, verse 18, he says, some of you have become arrogant. And then in verse two, he says, you are proud. And in verse six, again, he says, your boasting is not good. What Paul's identifying here is that the root issue is pride. And not only is this faction in the church proud about their freedom in Christ, that they're flaunting their freedom in Christ in a very arrogant, proud way, that's ticking them off. But also whoever this gentleman is who, gentleman, whoever this man is who's involved in this incestuous relationship is also proud of the fact that I'm free in Christ to do whatever I want and no one can touch me or say anything to me. Leave me alone, I'm good. In fact, not only am I good, I'm actually proud of the fact that I'm doing the, the right thing and that I'm a Christian in good standing and I'm, that's the kind of pride that was really ticking off Paul in this extreme situation. Paul is really upset here because this issue is incest. Now what's interesting is that he says that this isn't even acceptable to the pagans around you. And the Greeks and the Romans were known for very extremely lax laws and rules and understanding about anything to do with morality and sexuality. But it's interesting that, though Jewish law was very, very clear on incest, Roman law was just as clear on how, even by Roman law, incest was considered to be so vile. And that's something that Paul's pointing out to them and going, I just can't believe you guys came to the conclusion you did. Now, this situation, lots of speculation from commentators and theologians over the years, this is not a situation where, where this man is sleeping with his mother, this is likely a stepmother. This stepmother is, could be divorced from his father or maybe widowed. There's probably inheritance money involved because usually there's a greed element connected to these kind of situations. But whatever the situation, the woman in the story is not connected to the church. So the assumption is that this person isn't a part of the church. We don't know if this person is widowed or divorced. But... We, we do know that this man is living with her, and basically living like, no problem with this arrangement. That's, now, now one of the things that gets Paul so upset is Paul has been teaching through his books that there are lots of issues where there can be two sides to an issue, and um, two Christian views, that can, be, that can be both be valid, and, and we need to be open to that. And he talks about that with issues like eating meat sacrificed to idols, and there, there's a few other issues like that that he addresses. But this is one where he's basically going, there isn't really any wiggle room here for an alternate view. This is sin and evil and wrong. Um, let me just read you a quote from uh, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. He says, he, he, he's writes a book on Paul, and he says this, incest is not a subject about which there might be two equally valid Christian options. And again, he'd just been referring to those ones I was talking about. These are simply ruled out from the start, and those who do them are to be rebuked and reformed, or if they will not come into line, expelled. And so that is what's happening here few more things. I think Paul is also very angry in addressing the situation the way he is, because it's, it's, it's very likely that this man involved is in some form of leadership. And if it's not formal leadership, he's a very influential person that is being identified as someone that's kind of leading a, one of these fragmented parts of this divided church. And so they're basically a prominent person that are look, looked up to and respected. And that's not going over too well Again, from Paul's point of view, if this person is in any kind of leadership, then the reputation of the church and even the reputation of the gospel is at stake. And then lastly, and there's maybe more, but my last one in this this list of all the reasons why Paul's ticked off or angry and seeming so harsh is because he says to them, you're not feeling any grief about this. You're not mourning about the brokenness in your church. Now, this is really the opposite of pride, but I think it's important that Paul is saying, you know what, if this church would have been broken about what was going on, he would have had so much more grace for them. But they weren't mourning, they weren't broken, in fact, as he said earlier, they thought it was fine, and they were actually even proud about it. So I say all those things to kind of illustrate to you both the uniqueness and particularity of the situation, but also the seriousness of the situation. So what does Paul say to do? Now, I would suggest to you that it is assumed that they would have that they should have started with Jesus' methodology of the three levels of confrontation. But I think what Paul is pointing out here is that this person has not responded to individuals or to a small group of people confronting them. They're publicly proud and arrogant about their sin and are flaunting it. And so basically, it's kind of like one and two, the days for that possibility are over, and they're really just left with option number three. So he says in quite graphic language here that you gather the church together, and he puts it this way, hand him over to Satan. Sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? Hand him over to Satan. And he says to hand him over to Satan so that for the, should I say, the destruction of the flesh. Hand him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Hmm. So what do we do with this? Is Paul saying that is he calling for this man's death? Is Paul calling for an Ananias and Sapphira type incident? So if you're not sure what I'm talking about, a little earlier in the history of the church, early in the book of Acts, there was a couple that basically tried to defraud the church and God, and they lied and they fell over dead. It's a, it's a crazy story of, woo. <laughs> So is Paul really meaning the destruction of this guy's flesh literally? Now, some translations will say, rather than saying of the flesh, they will say the destruction of the sinful nature. I would say that more theologians would say it's probably not Paul calling out for the literal destruction of his flesh, but for the destruction of his sinful nature. Because again, what's the end game? The end game is repentance, repentance, and reconciliation, and even says it here, so that he will be saved in the end. Hopefully sooner, maybe not till later, but again, the purpose of the discipline is to save the soul while killing the sin or the flesh that causes the sin. So, but it still seems really harsh, doesn't it? What do you mean, hand him over to Satan? Well, one way that may help you understand this is to remember what happened to Peter. Now, you might remember, but just before Jesus was arrested, he said to Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Wouldn't you like Jesus to say that to you? (laughs) He said, but I've prayed for you and that you will stand and you will be able to endure and come out good in the end, something to that effect. I wonder if there isn't a similar idea here, that what what Paul is saying in in very graphic and and seeming very harsh terms is saying, this person We're handing this person over to Satan not to kill them or to have vengeance on them but because they need to be sifted. They need to be sifted so that this unrepentant sin in their life becomes known and understood and they feel the severity of it and that it'll eventually bring them to repentance and then hopefully reconciliation. And I think that's ultimately what Paul is getting to even though it may look to us like it sounds, oh, so extreme and severe. Yeah. Hmm. Now, a couple words that get used. I've used the word shunning, and I would suggest to you that that has no place in church discipline. Sometimes the word excommunication gets used in some church worlds. I have to be honest and say, I would not connect with that word as well. I don't think that the principle of excommunication is biblical. However, there's a third word. Maybe it doesn't sound that much better, but the third word would be disfellowshipping. And I would say that sadly, there needs to be a form of disfellowshipping when you get to this level of church discipline. And again, I would think that, again, Paul's not calling for the death of this guy or for them to, to necessarily shun him in the way we'd think shunning. But I think in the same principle that Jesus taught, it would be this person needs to be taken out of leadership, not participating in communion or in the intimate gatherings. And that they need to feel the pain of some of that distancing. Again, not to shame them, not to be evil to them, but because God disciplines the son he loves. Because hopefully the church is willing to bring accountability and discipline to someone they love, even when they see them in such a painful situation that is not only causing them to be, to be broken through the sin, but also affecting the church, being broken through the sin. Now, I don't know how this story ends, but there is some possibility that we know how this story ends. Now, this, is, this account is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul writes another letter to the Corinthians church a number of years later, and it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that Paul references a situation of someone being disciplined and how the discipline took effect and how they now need to restore this person. Now, theologians are divided as to whether they think that it's referring to this exact situation or another one, but I would suggest to you that either way, the principle remains the same as to what the end game of discipline is about. So this text I'm talking about is 2 Corinthians 2, 5 to 8, and you see it on the screen there. There's so much more around here. I don't have time to read it today. You should do that on your own if you want to get a fuller context of of how Paul is writing very um, intimately and very openly to the church about all kinds of things. But anyway, this is what he says in verse 5. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. Listen to verse 6. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead... You ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. So the truth is in the tension. We we heard an angry, ticked-off Paul who said, Church, you got to discipline this guy. But here's the tension of a grace-filled restoration Paul who is saying, The discipline has taken its effect. Now it's time to reach out to this person. So that, how does he put it here? That they don't have, be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. But that you want to get to the end game. Which is repentance and reconciliation and restoration to this person and to the church. And that's the heart of Paul in all this. So, to sum this up, yes, I'm going to try to sum it up. So, I have a final slide that is just, and again, I'm not, I'm not going to necessarily state any kind of thus saith the Lord authority here. I, I will fully admit that you're getting a good dose of Don's opinion here, so you take that between your spirit and God's spirit and your discernment, but just just a few sort of summary points in this whole area of church discipline. So, number one, discipline is not just about sexual sin, now, I don't know why, but for some reason in church history, we, are not- we have a notorious reputation for this is always the one that's the big ooh-ah thing that becomes the most serious kinds of sin of all. And I think you can look at many of the vice, they call them the vice passages in the New Testament, there's many other things including greed that are, that are right at the same level from God's point of view. So we just gotta be really careful that we don't think of this just in a sexualized way. And so I purposely put this verse in here for you to see, Titus 3.10. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. Whew, isn't that pretty harsh? Isn't that the same pattern? Sounds like church discipline for a very, very different issue that is being written here about being just as problematic. Divisive people in the church needing to be disciplined too. So just keep that in mind and many other things before you just kind of make this a sexualized thing. So, number one. So number two. Discipline that involves confronting each other in love should be common. Now what do I mean by common? I hope that I don't mean that every week you're thinking, hmm, who do I need to confront about the sin in their life? Or that every week you need to be wondering, oh boy. Who's coming to talk to me this week? Tell me about the sin in my life. I don't mean common in that way. But what I do mean is that if accountability matters, if our membership covenant matters, then accountability matters. If God's picture of discipline, which is he disciplines the son or daughter that he loves, then for us to respond in love and in family, accountability matters. So you know what? For us to be able to go to a brother and sister we love and say, hey, I see this in your life. I know it's hard for me to point it out, but I'm holding you accountable. To, can we pray about it? Whew. We're all hearing, I can't do that. That's judging someone. Maybe, or maybe it's love, if you really care about them. If you, again, really want to see restoration in their life. Now, what about me? Where's my heart in all this? How do I respond? Am I defensive? Can I take it? Like, can I, can I if I'm a member and I, and I sign that membership covenant, you know, in a sense, if you are in true spiritual community and that's what membership tries to, to have us understand, we basically are say, saying that we're signing up for this. We're signing up to be accountable for our brothers and sisters to be able to come to us in love and say, I see this problem or this sin or this hurt in your life, let's address it. And that rather than receiving it in a how dare you or in a real defensive way, we're actually supposed to receive it with humility and receive it as if that's a brother and sister loving us. Now, I know that's really hard to do, but I'm saying that if we had the kind of family relationship where confronting each other didn't feel like judgment, anger, and all that negative stuff, but actually felt like our brother or sister loving us, that would be really healthy. So can I encourage you? I think for some of us, we have to say, you know what, I am willing to be submissive and teachable and humble. And then for some of us, we, sometimes there will be the risk to say I need to go to my brother or sister that I love and be willing to confront them on something. This should be the regular flow of our relationships. Again, not in a judgy way, but in a way that really communicates love. Not easy to do, but I, I think that would be the mark of a healthy church. So then the third one there, discipline that involves disfellowshipping should be rare and carefully discerned. And again, I don't want to repeat myself here, but all of the parts I talked about in terms of checking our motives, you know, being in a, being in a humble posture, all those kinds of things need to, need to be a part of it. And I... And yeah, it's something that, um, that even we as leadership have to take seriously and talk about. And again, it's not, it's not an easy topic, but it's a topic that scripture instructs us. And again, keeping in mind, the end game is always rest, repentance and restoration. And there's that Galatians 6, one verse again. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. So in church discipline, remember the end game. But we're all, there's also a part of, it, of course, that is protecting the flock, that is pre- protecting the witness and the reputation of the church. That's part of it too. But let those things be secondary to the love that we have for each other, and that commitment to family. So, how do I conclude this? Worship team, come up. <laughs> So earlier this this week, when, uh, when Julie was picking songs, she didn't really ask me this, but it was like, how do you pick songs around the theme of church discipline? <laughs> so I said to her, let's sing about grace. And that was on purpose, because that's the other side of the tension. And we're, well, the, the song we're gonna sing now, I believe, is, "O oh Lord, You're Beautiful. And that might seem kind of odd. We're gonna sing, "O oh Lord, You're Beautiful, after we've talked about church discipline. Well, remember this. The God who loves you, he treats you like family. You're his daughter. You're his son. And he's beautiful because he loves you in every way, including that he loves you enough to discipline you. And that's the kind of love that we can worship. And that's the kind of love we can embrace to be a healthy community together. So, oh Lord, help us. Holy Spirit, fill us, empower us to follow and obey you. Your kingdom come, your will be done, here as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.
4: Please stand and sing with us. See you this week. Go in peace.